that the cost required in a municipal wastewater treatment plant is, is something we're just not prepared to do. But I think few people realize that these are zero discharge operations and that the, most of the plans associated with nitrogen control and the nutrient enrichment of estuaries has very little to do with the hog operations. Or they that perfectly run? Well, they, they can be, because what, what there are... Yeah. Or <laughs> Well... I mean, we know what happened in the storm, but yeah. on a day-to-day... On a day-to-day basis, they, they, they can be, because what, what you have, depending on their location, if you have the riparian buffers between the 50-foot riparian forested buffers between the agricultural field where the spray occurs and a stream, a remarkable amount of what's called denitrification will occur. That is, the nitrogen is likely to be in the form of nitrate because it's in the spray, it's being oxidized, and it gets into a nitrate form. And because of the forested buffer, there are, there are the necessary chemical conditions that convert the nitrate, which is the fertilizer for the stream, into nitrogen gas. And it, 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 it goes off into the atmosphere. Uh, now you can say, oh, that's, that's a free lunch. Well, also what is converted, about 5 or 6 percent, it's been the estimate I've heard, is converted into nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas. So it's not a completely free lunch. So that, yeah. Well, that's where the nitrate tends to be very soluble and goes into the groundwater. The bigger problem is the ammonia, which volatilizes, goes into the atmosphere. And the, the real question is, how far does it go? And where does it come down and what happens? And that's pretty poorly known. And the other thing is that, you know, while we know that as I tell my students, we know the nitrogen cycle, really. We know what happens. I mean, you know the cycle. We just don't know in the real world on large-scale farm plot size or watershed sizes what actually is happening. You know, we don't know reaction rates. We don't know whether the conditions are right for these various processes to occur. But if you put it in a controlled laboratory environment, we'd be able to predict pretty, pretty reliably what could happen. So one of the crying needs in this science is to is to do studies on a larger scale. But you could test. I mean, I, I assume people have done test the water quality of the river. Yes. In, in different sections where there are a certain. That's right. And in fact, there's a these, you know, there's some interesting model, water quality modeling going on Friday. Uh, no, actually, it's next week. Uh, I'm on the science advisory board for EPA on the Gulf of Mexico uh, hypoxia or low oxygen problem. And my task is to look at the water quality models that are being used in the Mississippi River Basin to see how effective they are at characterizing the nitrogen reduction on the land and in the stream. And they, they were, this, these models, the model I'm looking at was developed by the U.S. Geological Survey and it's solely based on data. So they've actually got a great deal of data to, uh, to indicate the degree of what we would call trapping the loss. But, you know, we, and, and actually we developed a model like this, like that, for the news. But it was 
developed too late the, the, the TMDL and didn't explicitly <coughs> these operations. So, uh, so the, the algal blooms in 96 were the, once the wastewater treatment for Mali was fixed, then that really reduced the nitrogen load. It was remarkable. I, mean, I was. Uh, I submitted a proposal to EPA that was funded in 2001 to evaluate this TMDL we helped prepare for uh, the state uh, on nitrogen. It was approved. And by the time we got the grant, and they went back in and monitored, they achieved compliance because the state was so aggressive. And so most of the deuce estuary was no longer listed as impaired. Which is great news for the news. It wasn't particularly good news for my research. <laughs> <laughs> the flooding events, those just spike, but then they they um, flow out. Well, that's an interesting point too. Uh, there's a there's a pretty strong hypothesis in North Carolina and these southeastern states that maybe you know maybe the the uh, the reduction in nitrogen in the Raleigh wastewater treatment plant played a role. Maybe the bigger factor was the hurricanes that scoured the system, cleansed the watershed, cleansed the water body, and sent it all out of the Pamlico Sound. And, and there's some compelling evidence that's what happened. We're, we're going we're gonna to take a look at that. Uh, was Floyd the following year? Pardon? Was Floyd the next year? I can't remember the exact years of, of those well, hurricanes. But, but when we look at things, Fred first and then Floyd, yeah, and that was just really, yeah. And when we look at the data, and it's it's interesting. You say, well, you know, huh. we we started our research project in ninety six, ninety seven, when you know everyone was concerned about what went on in ninety six and ninety five, um, and then we had you know we had the hurricanes, and. Some, uh, you know, with, with justification, people would say, how stupid could you be? Why didn't you look at your data and see whether the system was really impaired? Uh, but, well, you know, I, you know I, I, could, I, I certainly cannot be blameless on this, but what was interesting is that when I would talk to the state agency, the people in the state who go out and collect the water quality data on a daily basis, and ask them, well, are you looking at the data And they say, no, we're not. Because if we leave someone in the office to do the analysis, then he or she is not out of data, and those data are further lost. So it ended up that our research group back around 1999 2000 began to look at the data and recognize something was going on there. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Right, it's kind of distressing to see that, but I guess all's well that ends well in the sense that the news is now in compliance uh, with with the chlorophyll standard. But the you know key question is why, and and since we haven't had any major hurricanes, we, we haven't looked at the data since um, I guess two thousand and one, and during the academic year, there's not a lot of research that goes on. We're busy teaching and so forth. But starting the summer, we're gonna we're gonna get the, the data up up to the present and, and look at. It. <laughs> <laughs> so you're analyzing the 
Yes, we're analyzing their data. Um, actually, it's, a, it's another it's so you understand problems with water, water quality data. There's water quality data and water quality data. We had two groups working with us. Um, we had the um, UNC uh, Marine Lab collecting water quality data and the Division of Water Quality collecting water quality data. They weren't using the same methods. And we didn't realize that until the very end of the study. And we spent, my group spent about a month trying to figure out statistically how we could combining. And those of you who know statistics uh, will recognize this point. When we, when we put both of those data in the data set to predict, we found that what's called the dummy variable, depending on who collected the data, was statistically significant at the 5% level, which means that you know, there's some there's, there's very different results from between the two labs. And that was, that was does the state put data in I think, yeah, I think the state routinely puts it in Storette. And, and, and the UNC Marine Lab. Yeah. Yeah? Well, this is just another question kind of related to the hog farms. But so the nitrogen issue, but what about other things that might be coming Yeah, I'm going to get to that. Yep. You anticipated one of my last slides, and I think I may jump to that fairly quickly. Um, Okay, we've talked about this pretty much. In this. Good. This, is a, this is actually the model we used uh, that uh, you know, started from nitrogen inputs up down to chlorophyll concentration, which was the standard that went over there to the right. And then we wanted people to be aware of what this meant in terms of fish bills and shellfish abundance and so on. But this is my final slide of getting at your question. The new challenges. And you hit the first bullet. The pharmaceuticals. Uh, it seems that not only the, a lot of these pharmaceuticals, whether they're over-the-counter or prescription, um, go through the treatment plants about as efficiently as they go through us as people. Um, so you wonder, you know, what is the aquatic life doing with a lot of Prozac in the street? Uh, as well as just plain over-the-counter medications. Uh, and, and of course, we may be a, we as people may be a small source of these relative to the animals to get huge amounts. This is just becoming a hot issue, um, and there's a lot to be learned. Not only what's there, how much is there, what is the impact uh, for those things for which there is an adverse impact. How do we control it? How do we treat for it? Uh, but that's that's a big that's clearly a, a, a big issue. Uh, groundwater depletion is is increasingly an issue. It's it's pretty evident with regards to surface water when you're drawing it down. With groundwater, you've got a cone of depression around the, the, the withdrawal point, but you really you have some notion of the groundwater reservoir. And you know, of course, you probably, a lot of you may have heard of the Ogallala Aquifer out in the middle of the U.S. and the, the, the feeling about how we're drawing that down and relative to how much it's being uh, replenished. But that's also a serious problem in North Carolina. Serious problem in the coastal plain where we're just drawing the water down. It's a serious problem in the, uh, in, in the, in the shoreline areas where we're getting saltwater intrusion. And it's just not as easy to, uh, to reckon. And it's a serious problem globally, too. 
Uh, India is one of the areas where it's it's particularly a problem. And then you know there there are there are global issues. Uh, there are issues of uh, what is climate change going to do in terms of uh, of uh, uh, the the positioning of supply and demand. Uh, how is how is that how is that going to affect us? Uh, privatization is an interesting issue, and in, in, in globally, uh, our Nicholas Institute at the Nicholas School, is our uh, uh, board of directors, is headed up by Bill Riley, former EPA head. And Bill's a real advocate of privatization, but it's highly controversial globally. Um, and from you know from what I've heard, and I. I I think I've heard it from enough unbiased people. It, it makes a lot of sense, but it's very controversial among the um, among the citizens of these of these countries, and yet it does seem to uh, provide them with a source of relatively clean water. And then, of course, there are a number of nonprofits that are figuring out inexpensive ways to treat water in third world countries to make it. Uh, make it drinkable. But in general, we've got just severe water quality degradation in in the uh, less developed world uh, with the uh, huge urbanization problems that we have. And, and uh, I th- you know, fortunately, a number of universities, Dukes among them, is, is, is re- are really gearing up for uh, addressing the the global water quantity quality issues. Of course, the big unknown is is uh, what is climate change going to do in, in terms of distribution of water and so forth. So, time to go home. Yeah. Just a quick question on fish advisories. How does North Carolina stack up versus so much of the East and the questions of mercury? You know, I, I I don't know a great deal about it, but I, I've got I've got no sense that we are um, doing any worse uh, than than any anyone else. Uh, just as, as an aside on that, one of the projects we're working on deals more with shellfish, and it's it's fascinating to to see how. Not only North Carolina, but most of the states regulate commercial shellfish. What they, they have uh, in, in the estuary, estuary environments throughout, really, the whole coastal area of the state, and this is true in Virginia, I think in South Carolina, and neighboring states, is that they have many areas that are provisionally closed for shellfishing. And what happens is, if you get a rainstorm of a certain magnitude, and the way they gauge that is they've got people who have rain gauges in their backyards, and just private citizens, and they call them up, find out how much rain did you get. And if they got over a certain amount, the shellfish sanitation people will close the shellfish bed to commercial shellfish. And depending on the amount of rain, they won't go out and sample until three, four days take place, and then they'll go out and sample the water column for the indicator organism. And if it's below the criterion, they'll reopen the bed. Uh, I, I was a grad student now working on a whole 
whole aspects of that. First of all, whether the strategy makes sense. Second of all, do the indicator organs relate to any degree with the pathogenic organisms in the shellfish? Uh, but what's, what's, what's really happening there, and uh, while this is a TMDL program, in many ways it's more of a local development problem, is that the local communities seem to recognize that the, the, the tax dollars aren't building uh, homes and condominiums, now, not kind of on the beach shore, but in the estuary environment. Because the water table is so high, they've got to build drainage ditches all the time. So the irony is that even though there may be fewer, because many sources of animals, not septic tanks from what we can see, there may be actually fewer animals, that is pets, farm uh, animals, and uh, uh, wild animals. But because the water is channeled so much more rapidly into the estuary by all these channels, they get a peak flow of water and a peak concentration in the water column, and it leads to closure of the shellfish. And this, this sort of thing with regards to bacterial contamination is happening all over. One of the guys I'm working with in Florida, Florida Stormwater Association, sent me a newspaper clipping. It was a community out in Colorado it has an upper limit on the number of dogs that the, um, people who reside in the community can own. And I think that's 40, that's a small community, 45 or something like that. And so if they've got 45 dogs, that's it. Because the feeling is the dogs are creating bacterial contamination in the streams, leading to water quality violations. So the only way you can get a dog is to have someone else lose a dog. Getting off target, but 
in the News and Observer column yesterday about the trees in Raleigh. Did anybody see that? Um, uh, apparently, a, sign, a reputable scientist, global change scientist, said he did, he did some modeling and analysis and said that it didn't make sense to massively plant trees in the, you know, in the um, the moderate climate areas of the world because the, the grasses that currently exist where we're talking about planting trees reflect more radiation back out than the trees will absorb. Um, and, and, and then actually, apparently, uh, in the long run, that's true. In the short term, um, the trees, if they're rapidly growing, will, will uh, absorb more the main point of this was these were a couple of the tree planters from Ramali was don't stop planting the oaks Ramali just because it's that it's the statement but it, it, it indicates the difficulty mm -hmm. figuring out what to do with these complicated scientific problems mm -hmm. okay well my voice held up I enjoyed it